If you would, please take your Bibles out and, and open them up to the book of Ruth. We continue to make our way through this wonderful story uh, just after the judges in your Old Testaments. We have been looking at the first chapter and kind of seeing as, uh, though it's a short book, it's packed with very important uh, theology, very important information, uh, very important outlooks on yeah, you know, I keep coming back to the reality of where the Judges is set. The context of this book is set in the period of the Judges, and we understand, as I said last week and the week before that, that it's, there was no king in Israel, and each did what was right in his own eyes. We can't stress that enough, that as, as, as the book of Ruth unfolds even more, we can't stress enough the prevailing ethos in Judah and in Bethlehem, really in Israel and, and, and Judah as a whole, or Israel as a whole rather, that you have this prevailing sense of godlessness. And so when you see, uh, you see godliness on display, it stands out. And it's easy for us to read Ruth and see it and, and not think much about it, but we need to understand that this is the shining reality and the shining truth against a backdrop of evil. And there's just no other way to say uh, or describe, rather, the period of the judges than just to say, it was wicked and evil. But we can relate. I mean, you can look at judges and read judges with a sense of familiarity because we live in a time period where people do what's right in their own eyes. They live as if there is no king sitting on the throne. And so what Judge, or what Ruth rather does for us is it gives us an opportunity to see that we can live against culture and shine our lights for truth and goodness and godliness in the face of horrendous evil. We have those opportunities. And in fact, that's exactly what we should be doing, right? We should be doing that that God has called us to be light or salt and light in this world where we do shine, where we do uh, bring truth to bear in culture. And I love that Ruth and Boaz, neither of them carry a sword. Neither of them are military strategists. Neither of them um, are, are remembered as those who could do great feats of strength like Samson. Neither of them are remembered for having just remarkable wisdom like Solomon. Neither of them are remembered for having prophetic prowess and miraculous abilities like Elijah or Elisha. These are two people who chose, and I'm not being cliche here, I'm just this is absolutely earnest, who chose to love like God would call them to love in a culture of death and hate, and we remember them. They stand out. They stand out for, for recognizing the beauty of giving yourselves over to truth that you might love and sacrifice well. And that's a powerful testimony. That's a powerful testimony in a time period where people are programmed to be individualists and utterly selfish. It was true in Judges. <laughs> it's true today. So this morning we're coming to the final few uh, verses of this, of this first chapter, chapter 1. We're looking at verses 19 to 22, and this is all about Naomi and Ruth returning back to uh, Bethlehem. 
So this morning we're looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 22, so follow along with me in your Bibles if you have them. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Or the women, rather, said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please take a moment to pray with me. Father, Your Word is before us, a short, very tight set of verses. Use them, God, to draw us closer together to one another in the community of Christ, but to dig our roots more deeply in you. Transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've already heard me reference in this series Joseph before, the Joseph from the Old Testament, Jacob's son. And Joseph is perhaps one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, It was one of the first stories I learned when I became a Christian it was just one of those stories that just captured my attention early. I think I, I did some study that Dr. David Jeremiah had done several years ago through the life of Joseph, and it made a deep impact on me because Joseph, there's something compelling about the story of Joseph. We remember it, or, or maybe most of us do. Um, he's the beloved son of Jacob, right? The, the, the son that Rachel really couldn't have, that she had been barren. The Lord opens her womb, and they give Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, Joseph, I mean, his name right out of the gate, the Lord has added. That's the gift he was seen of in his house. And we remember Jacob loved his son. Jacob coddled his son. Jacob gave his son privilege because Joseph was that beloved son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And God was with Joseph from a young age. Remember, he had dreams that he recounted to his brothers and his father and his parents. Right? And his father, would I bow down to you? That's what Jacob had said to Joseph when Joseph was young. And God did have a plan to use Joseph, right? God did have a plan to use Joseph. But Joseph had to learn some valuable lessons along the way. In fact, approximately 15 years' worth of being betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, then betrayed by Potiphar's wife, and cast into prison then interpreting dreams for two prisoners and asking for a word with the higher-ups, forgotten about by them until finally remembered when Pharaoh was in crisis and Joseph got his moment. But beloved of God, when we look at Joseph's life, we could say humanistically speaking, he was full. He had a father who loved him and two parents who probably doted on him. They were a wealthy family. He had everything he wanted. God was working in his life. God was calling him into some sort of ministry. All these things were working together, and yet God decided that Joseph needed something more. Joseph went from fullness into years of famine, of being enslaved, being imprisoned, 
of being mistreated, of being forgotten, all for one central moment to be brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, if you remember, I hear, this is Brad's paraphrase, I hear you interpret dreams. Joseph says, the dream is not mine, it is from the Lord. He's beginning to acknowledge where does his power flow from, where is his identity rooted, where is his fullness really found, not in his power, but in what God has done. We can go back a little bit earlier. In Potiphar's household, remember, Potiphar's wife says, come with me, come with me. He says, I can't. How could I do this thing and sin against whom? Not your husband. Sin against God. Joseph was on a journey to learn where is his fullness. Is it in his circumstance? Is it in his power? Is it in his abilities? Is it in riches or whatnot? No, it's in, it's in the Lord. God brought him on this 15-ish year, approximately 15-year journey to teach him something about his own, about, to teach Joseph something about himself and then something about God, because Joseph does later confess what you intended for evil, God meant for good, which is being accomplished now, the saving of many lives. Why would God do this? That's the question we humans generally want to ask. Why would God do this, that, or the other? Well, I don't know, right? We don't always know the mind or heart of God. We can't answer all the whys of what God does and doesn't do. But God does seem to be teaching Joseph a lesson on fullness and us a lesson by virtue of his life. Uh, Joseph had, had fullness, right? As I told you, family importance, riches, heritage, all these things. He's had a secured place. But there was something more that he needed to learn. Joseph was brought to a place of learning that there's more in restoration and redemption than just having things. And we're seeing this in the book of Ruth. That's why I'm mentioning Joseph, because we're seeing the exact same story, a very similar one. I shouldn't say the exact same. They're different. But a very similar story now unfold in Ruth. We're getting a lesson on what does it really mean to be full and what does it really mean to be empty? What does it really mean to be in famine? And what does it really mean to have plenty? These are, are philosophical ideas that we have to grapple with in Ruth. Because there are things that we can see that appear to be one way, but the question is, is it really that way? Are we really seeing things as they are? Is Naomi seeing things as they are when she says, I went away full and came back empty. Don't call me Naomi, i.e. don't call me pleasant. That's what her name means. Call me Mara, i.e. bitter, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Is Naomi right? Those are questions we have to grapple with. Is Naomi seeing things? Is she seeing things as they are? Because when we, when we look at God's economy, beloved, it's easy to look at a famine and think it's utter destruction. But is it always? Is that what its ultimate goal is? Does famine bring destruction of, short, of sorts? It absolutely does. Is there a purpose behind it? We have to acknowledge that there is. It should not be lost on us that Joseph was an administrator during a severe famine in Egypt. And what did that famine do? Well, and one, one thing it did was reunite Joseph with his family. No famine, probably no reunion. Another thing it did is it set Israel up in the land of Goshen so that 
A few hundred years later, another deliverer could come named Moses and lead them out to Mount Sinai where the law could be given and Israel could be established as a nation. So when we think about famine, well, you can look at the, the, the ministry of the prophets, and often God would use famine to establish a prophet as one who speaks the word of the Lord. And so famine does bring hardship, but as a general rule, there's something behind that famine that God is trying to establish, his supremacy, his, uh, the truth of his word. But a richer harvest, let's call it that, a richer harvest, something that we otherwise might not experience if we don't walk through this particular famine. It's not popular, right? It's not even palatable, really, because pleasure is king, and we would much rather feel good and be easy than have to navigate a famine with this idea that there is something rich, very rich, on the other side of this. I don't like pain. I've said this many times. I don't love it. I don't embrace it. It's not my favorite thing. It's not even close to a thing that I want. And yet I understand that God uses it, that God uses pain and hardship to produce spiritual fruit. I'm sure Richard would probably agree with me in this so often when we're giving counsel to younger people or to couples or to whatever. So often some of the counsel, that much of the, the, the good counsel I've come to for myself has been dearly paid for and bought through seasons of deep pain. Pain that leads me to a deeper truth still. This morning, what we're looking at is fairly simple. The idea is this. Famine comes that we might find fullness in the Lord. That famine comes that we might find fullness in the Lord. And, and we're looking at what does it mean to be blessed in the midst of bitterness? What does it mean to experience the Lord's blessing in the midst of what could be a bitter season? Because here's the thing. It's easy to give ourselves over to bitterness. How easy is it in relationships to let, your, to let hard, hard things fester into resentment and then fester into bitterness? It becomes very easy, really, because you see, looking for blessing in the seasons that are hard is the harder work because how do we look beyond a circumstance to something richer and more beautiful that the Lord might be doing through this particular relationship, this circumstance, this event, this trial, this famine, whatever you want to label it, that takes faith, faith that the Lord is in fact doing something. It takes patience, a willingness to really wait and see what God might be doing. And beloved, it takes an unwavering hope, a hope that something better, the Lord is working something better than just this moment. Those are, none of that is easy, and I don't pretend to think that it is, but that is the road of genuine faith when we're going from famine to harvest. Naomi has already walked a hard road. I mean, my goodness, she left her, she left her country, she lost her husband, she lost her sons, and now she has nothing. So we're not looking at a character who's pontificating on blessing and famine from a, from a table with plenty or from a house that is full. We're talking about a character who's lost, deeply lost. And how do you come back from that? 
I think that's a great question that Ruth answers, asks and answers for us. How do you come back from horrific famine and loss? Well, there's one way, dear friends, it is through Yahweh. There is fullness in the Lord, and it is the better blessing, but it is very trying because when we're going to look for fullness in the Lord and not just life and circumstance, beloved, it's going to require two things of us. I've already mentioned one, faith and surrender. When you start talking about faith and surrender, those are great Christian words. Those are great Christian words, and we can bat them around all day long. You know, we've often chuckled at what are some of the classic Sunday school answers. Jesus, of course, is the number one answer. And if that one doesn't work, maybe you try, have more faith. Um, I forget what the third one is, but those are the top two. And we bat around ideas of faith and surrender. Oh, we need to be surrendered to Christ. We need to have faith in Christ. But we're just talking about, when we're just going to talk about the two ideas of faith and surrender, we need to understand that as human beings, those are two things that do not naturally come to us. I want to see results before I put mine, before I invest. And why should I surrender? I need to take control of my life because I know where it needs to go and I can steer it there best. Well, those exactly are, 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 are penchant to not trust but to want to see results and our penchant to not surrender because we want to be in control are the two things that mitigate against the very idea of what it means to walk in keeping with the Lord and His principles and looking for a richer harvest in the Lord. So in, in the sense that we've got to be people who do trust and believe and who do live surrendered lives. So we're told here in verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So when we get to Bethlehem, that mention of the word, remember the house of bread, it's in Judah, it's the land of promise, Ruth and Naomi are back to where they're supposed to be, the, the land of promise, and, and it's not been without trial and blessing, we've already acknowledged that. Their journey will not be without both trial and blessing. They are a blessing one to another, but there are deep trials as they both continue to grieve. But we, we first hear this idea, so when the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. That word stirred there is very interesting. Uh, stirred. Think of agitated, excited, or quite literally, the whole city murmured either about them or against them or because of them. Now you're getting a little flavor for small-town country life. Some of you understand exactly what I mean when I say that. Um, Small-town country life with this juicy bit of, well, did y'all see who showed up in town? Um, if, you, if you've had an experience, you know exactly what I mean. That's the spirit of it, really. That's the spirit of it. Well, Naomi is back. And she's got this lady in tow who we know is her daughter-in-law. She's a Moabite. And so when you hear this is stirred up, it's not like the triumphal entry of Jesus where people are waving palm, palm branches like, hey, you made it. It's no, it's hushed whispers. It's probably overt and covert gossip, overt and covert slander. 
you're, there's agitation at the scene. It's not the spirit of welcome. It's judgment even. Well, here's one who went off to Moab thinking she was going to find the answer, and look what she's got. Nothing but a Moabite daughter-in-law in tow. I mean, we're seeing it happen right in front of us, this, this picture of failure, this reality because what is the culture that Ruth lives in is very similar to Southern culture. If you've grown up in Southern culture, you understand the, the code. It's very Eastern in the sense that it's shame and honor. It's shame and honor. You live in a, a culture of, of shame and honor and, and disgrace, and disgrace is probably one of the, the greatest sins that you can commit. And in a culture that grades you on how well you've done, and if that's a mark of your success or your failure, is what you've done and how well you've done it. And if you've not done it well, you're a failure. Ruth and Naomi come back complete failures, culturally speaking. Naomi gambled with her husband and lost, and all she has is a Moabite daughter-in-law to show for it. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek because we all know, having read the story, how valuable Ruth actually is. She's already stated how valuable she'll become. But what we're seeing here is the burden and reality of what God is about to do. What is God doing here? Well, in one sense, He's tearing away every shred of, of human, let's call it, anchor that Noemi, uh, <laughs> Naomi, not Noemi, um, Naomi, <laughs> sorry, Naomi and Ruth might have, and he's, he's, he's tearing it all down because the wisdom of the day or strength in self or self in general is not going to be how Naomi and Ruth forged their way ahead. And so what are we looking at here is this quote-unquote failure becomes an opportunity for God to do something that humanly that human beings can't do. Her husband is not going to rise from the dead, and her sons are not going to rise from the dead. God is going to resurrect them, and He's going to do it in a way that brings glory to Himself, and that is so atypical in this culture of the judges that God will be praised. But here's one thing I want for us to see, and it's a minor detail, but it's worth, it's worth noting. You're talking about two women in the ancient Near East in a time where it was easy to rob on roads because they're mountainous regions where people can hide in bins, two women, Ruth and Naomi, who make it back from Moab to Bethlehem. It's almost as if God wanted them to make it, right? It's almost as if God wanted them to make it unharmed, unmolested, where they need to be, for a specific purpose. And so we're looking at provisional grace in its finest. Life had been unkind, right? We can acknowledge that. Life had been unkind. So God's provisional grace doesn't mean that life is going to be cherry blossoms and bubble gum. It may be really hard, but God saw them through. He kept them on their way. And here's the thing that you and I have to come back around to. These little daily supplications, or these daily rather, um, uh, the daily ways in which God gives us 
our bread or the things that we need. There are, li- there are little graces along the way to remind us that God does not abandon His people. These little graces, they help redeeming love prevail. They help us see when we get to where we're going that along the way, God was doing little things. And I'm going to put little in quotes because they're really big things. We'll call them little things. God was doing little things for the sake of redemption and preservation. Ruth and Naomi are redeemed by the ministry of Boaz because God got them back to where they needed to be. Not easily, not without heartache, not without weeping, not without tears, not without famine, but home, back in the vicinity of where they needed to be for redemption to occur. Oh, it's almost as if the Lord is constantly pressing us to that place of nothingness so that we see our all is in Him. And in fact, that is what He's doing. So he's creating a sense of of need in us. And then the story builds on this. When they ask, is this Naomi, we need to understand that there is probably some slice of literalness to this. Um, Some commentators think the years had been unkind to Naomi and she was unrecognizable. That's possible. Some just say it's almost of mock surprise. Oh, Oh, so is this Naomi, the one we knew would come crawling back? Some say it's some combination of those. It doesn't matter how you take it, really. I think it's a legitimate question of, oh, wow, is is Naomi returned? It's surprise. It goes along with the agitation. However we understand it, the question is asked, and that's what sets it up for her to begin to describe herself. She says to them, do not call me Naomi which means pleasant or something along those lines. Call me Mara, which means bitter or something along those lines. For the Almighty, that is the Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. And so when we see this bitterness, what is it doing to Naomi? Well, in the immediate, it's blinding her from what God is doing. So you have this identity crisis, which is so interesting to me because it creates a powerful irony in this story. Naomi says, I'm not Naomi. Don't call me Naomi because I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She just made an identity statement about herself. I'm not pleasant. I am bitter. That is the descriptor of my life. Now, a few verses before, Ruth says, well, my Naomi is, I mean, my, my identity is different. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I'll be buried. Ruth makes this profound identity statement of my identity has changed. Naomi has forgotten who she is while Ruth is being reborn into this new, this new identity. Now, she does have a settled view of God's sovereignty. The Lord is doing all this. She does it. It's not as if she's trying to divorce what's happening from God's power or His ability. She just deeply misunderstands the purpose of it. She understands that God is doing something. She just doesn't know what categories to put it in, what, how to frame it. That's where she, that's where she is. But what she, she's trying to make an identity change, and God is not trying to change her identity so much as He's trying to tear down what is unhealthy, 
and rebuild it into something that is right, good, and beautiful, and true. But this is a human issue, right? Don't we often, we look at things that are hard and trials, and we view them in, in terms or in negative terms. I do too. I think everybody in this room, if we're honest, we do. Rare is the person who is going through a trial and who's like, thank you, Jesus, yes. Rare is the person. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying they're rare because we typically don't look at trials that way. And I don't think we should. I don't think we should be skipping along if we're in seasons of lament. That's not the point. But the point is to not get stuck in bitter seasons where we make identity statements of like, God is not for me. He's against me even though I can understand how we might feel that way. Well, what is God doing? He's constantly pruning, pruning, cutting off that which is dead, cutting off that which does not help produce life. Why? Because that's how the richer harvest happens, through the pruning. She builds on this idea, so she makes this identity statement, don't call me uh, Naomi, call me Mara. Why? She tells you exactly why. Because the Almighty, which is not a typical word used in the Old Testament. I'm not saying it doesn't occur, but you've heard the song, you know, El Shaddai. God Almighty, literally El Shaddai is God Almighty. Job is very fond of using the descriptor of God as the Almighty. But look, she takes the covenant name out of it, and she focuses in on the power of God. Well, not Yahweh is doing this, but the Almighty, the one who has supreme power, is unleashing his power against me. That's the, the idea. And then she says, and she expands on this. How does she know that the Almighty is against her? Well, she says, I went away full. And now she uses that covenant name. And the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has literally brought evil upon me? So this is what I like to call the fullness fallacy. She says, I went away full and came back empty. How did she go away full? Well, with everything culturally that says she's supposed to have, she checked the boxes. I had a husband. We had an inheritance. We had sons. And we had all the things that we're supposed to have, i.e., I was full. I had everything that culture says I should have. And that are not bad things. They're good things, what she had, what she's talking about. In the same way that Joseph had a full life. But here's the thing. She's deeply misunderstanding what it means to be full. She saw fullness purely in family and station. And God is going to fill her anew. God is going to make her full. He's going to fill her with love. But she needs to understand that this idea that she comes back empty. I mean, do you wonder if Ruth is standing there like going, are you kidding me? What am I, chopped liver here? I just made this grand pledge to you, and I'll, you know, it's very poetic and rich and beautiful, and you're telling people you came back empty? That's what she's doing. She's missing something here. Let's be fair to Naomi for just a second. She has no idea what's going to happen through Ruth. None through Ruth. None. No idea. So we'll cut her a little bit of slack, but we can see this deep misunderstanding that the fullness of God at work in our lives is not circumstantial. It's truth. It's not emotion. I.e., it's not how I feel. It's not how things make me feel. We're, we're emotional creatures. We go on that, but it's something richer and deeper than how I feel. It's something that's 
eternally true whether I feel it or not. She says that the Lord is against me. Um, well, this is a misunderstanding of what trial is. Does it feel like the Lord can be against us from time to time? Sure, I'll grant that. But understanding that He's not is fundamental to how we understand God, that He's not seeking our harm. In trial, God is often drawing us closer. And listen, listen, seriously, I want to make sure you hear me say this. As pastor at the chapel, as a pastor here at the chapel, Richard and I both get to walk with people through deep, dark times, hard times. And I would never, ever stand up here and tell you that your trial is of no consequence or nothing. I know that there is pain in this room, and there is brokenness in this room, and there is lament in this room, and there is deep sadness sitting here this morning. And those trials are hard and they hurt. Here's what I do know and what I've learned and what I'm learning still is that it's in those moments that God is with us, that God is working with and for us, that even even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because I'm happy and it's all going to turn out great? No, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Beloved, it's just rich truth that in trial, God really is working with us in force to draw us closer to Himself. And what happens when we suffer? We see our need. When I suffer, I see I'm not capable. When I suffer, I see my own weakness. And so do you. She builds on this. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought evil, calamity upon me. She's not saying that God is morally evil. Right? She's not saying that God is somehow culpable for all the evils in the world. She's just saying that he's brought me to a hard time. And here's the beauty of it. What has to happen for idols to be destroyed? Suffering. I said this last week. Suffering has to happen. False hopes need to be destroyed. And God does seek to destroy them. God is not against us. He is for us, and the work of renewal is deeply, deeply painful, so that when we look at the details of our life, every last one of them are working towards our redemption. It's interesting. He finishes out, so Naomi returned Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's something going on here. It's funny because the reason that you get the second mention of Ruth the Moabite is you're being introduced or reintroduced to this unlikely uh, character who is going to be a source of hope, love, life, and redemption through this, through this Moabite woman, this very unlikely character. You know what it reminds me of, really? It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The man is laying in the ditch, beaten and naked, and the priest passes him. The other Jewish man passes him. But who is it that stops? The most unlikely character Jesus could think of, the Samaritan man who was hated by Israel, and and Samaria, Samaria hated Israel. But it was this man who was a natural enemy who stops to show love and compassion and bring healing to this man. You're seeing it here in Ruth. Ruth, this Moabite, natural enemy of God's people, is, bring, is going to be a source of hope and healing. 
It's this opportunity to remember that God's plan is so much bigger than what we can conceive of. They came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Is God a covenant Lord who loves well? Well, yeah. They come during a harvest. What does this remind us of? It's time to gather food. And they come at the time where food can be gathered. So God has orchestrated the story to get them right back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, so they can begin gathering grain for food. God is working a plan. When we look at at what God is doing, He often brings famine to our flesh that faith might be cultivated. We've already acknowledged how painful famines can be. I mean, hunger, uh, it's a barren land, no life. That's hard. But when we look at famine, it's not really our enemy, right? You've heard me say this before, that pain and hardship are not our enemy. The world wants us to think that they are. That's not our enemy. Worldliness, godlessness, apathy, idolatry, those are the things that are our enemies, and those are the things that take root in our bodies, in our, in our souls rather, and in our hearts that need to be rooted out. And so the famine God brings is designed to kill those things and put to death those things that we might walk in the newness of life. God is working for a harvest of righteousness. He's going to do it in Ruth. The very next chapter, Ruth meets Boaz. She meets the guy who's going to change everything, and they develop this relationship. God is orchestrating something far beyond what they could imagine. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says, and I'll end on this note. That he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. He did it in Ruth. He did it through Jesus. He does it in his people. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together this morning and for just the richness of this book. We could go on and on and on and on, and yet we could never plumb the depths of your mercy and love. Thank you for such a rich salvation. Thank you for such a beautiful redemption. Thank you for loving us the way that you have. Thank you for making us your own, giving us an identity that says we are beloved by Christ. And because of that, we may walk through deep valleys, but never alone and never without hope because Jesus is living and reigning and ruling and is coming again. It's through his glorious name that we pray. Amen.